0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And that's because that's what Ephesians chapter 1 is about, so turn with me there. We said a few words about this book last week, but I want to recapture some of that and to move on as we go through as I had said two weeks ago or so, when turning to the book of Ephesians, my initial uh, desire was to look at the one another passages in the Word of God. Because, on the one hand, our congregation is moving forward, our congregation is planning on meeting on Shabbat come in, Saturday, uh, come in September. We've talked about this. But it is not merely the day in which we gather together, but it is the kind of people we are who gather together that is critical and most important. We are to be a one another people. We are to love one another. I think 15 or 16 times in the the New Testament scriptures, that injunction is presented to us. That commandment is given. Love one another. That's the preeminent one another passage of all the one another passages. But I like a few others, like uh, bear one another's burdens. I'm always grateful when individuals come alongside and they are bearing my burdens with me and sometimes for me. And so that is one that I cherish. I'm always reminded of Moses, who is observing the battle of the Israelites led by Joshua against the Amalekites as they came out of the land of Egypt. And Moses is on the hill, and as his hands stayed up, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were victorious. When his hands fell, they began to be overwhelmed by their enemies. But here was Aaron and her bearing his burdens. He couldn't raise his hands any longer. They lifted it up for him. They were bearing one another's burdens. And that is always a blessing to me. Sometimes I try to bear others' burdens, but I must confess, more often than not, my burdens are bared by others for me or with me. And that may be your case as well. But that is a one another injunction that we are given. There are many others in the Scripture, and that's where I wanted to go. But as I turned to one of those one another passages in Ephesians chapter 4, I then began to think that that's the passage of Scripture I really wanted to focus on. Chapter 4 and the succeeding or the subsequent verses, because those are chapters and passages that deal with how the body is to function how the local assembly, the congregation of believers, the kahal, the congregation is to gather together and how they are to function with one another. If functioning with one another was easy, Paul would not have had to instruct us on how to do it. Not just in Ephesians, but in the book of Corinthians and in other passages as well. The fact of the matter is we are all still engulfed affected by and prone to sin, that wages war in our members, that dwells in our members, and oftentimes is the result of how we act and behave with one another. And so Paul instructs the believers at Ephesus in chapter 4 about how the body is to come together and to function as a living organism, with Messiah as the head. He is the head of the congregation, whether universally or locally. It is he we are attempting to always follow. It is he that we are commanded to obey. He has the final word in all of our lives and in our congregational life as we move forward corporately together in the world that God has placed us in, in the community in which we are located. I wanted to go to chapter 4. And as I began to study chapter 4, I then began to think and reflect on the fact that the first three chapters are Paul's doctrinal foundation. Now, I know the word doctrine scares a lot of people. The word doctrine merely means teaching. I was always one that was drawn to the theological words of God. I was always one that was really interested in the study of philosophy and theology and how the parts fit together. It's one thing to make statements about what the scripture says. It's another thing to have them sort of line up in a symmetrical pattern and how they impact and affect each other. That was always something I found really interesting and wanted to pursue more and more of. When I was in seminary, that would have been my major would have been systematic theology because that's what I found to be so deeply embedded in my own heart and soul. I wanted to understand how the parts fit together. Other people have other interests and desires equally as important. I'm not saying this is most important, but as I began to look at chapter 4 and the other chapters about how the body is to behave, how individuals are to live, how we are to relate to one another, be that our children, Paul will talk about that in the book of Ephesians, be that with our spouses, Paul will talk about that as well in the book of Ephesians, be it with regard to those in our body who are gifted in a variety of ways, Paul will talk about that. With regard to how we are to be reacting and responding to our leadership, Paul talks about that. This is a very practical book, but it is laid on a bedrock of theological truth. If you don't like theology, you will not like the Bible. If you don't like theology, you will be limited in your understanding of the God about whom theology speaks. After all, theology is the study of God. So you don't like theology, you're not gonna like God very much or as much as you ought. Remember what we say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's important that we work our minds to understand God as much as to trust in him and to live in accordance with his life. This dichotomy of thinking right about God and living well before God is a fallacy. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot live right with God if you don't know the God with whom you are to live. And if you don't know what God expects of you, you cannot put it into practice. So theology is critical to our reflecting on how we behave and how we act. I had the privilege of teaching theology to young people. And of course, when they came in, I said, guys, this is going to be an exciting class. We're going to talk about doctrine. And they'd look at me like, what? I said, wait, we're going to really love this, you know. And they began to learn big words that I would tell them, bring them to your parents and watch. You'll see they don't understand it and don't tell them. Tell them they should get a dictionary and look it up and you'll feel real good about yourself, you know. And they would come and they'd say, Mr. D, it worked. And my dad is the pastor or my dad is an elder. I said, just hang with me and you will get through this class and you will love it. Most of them did, maybe not all, but a good many, enough of them to encourage me to do it again and again and again and again. But if you look at chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's all about this theological foundation that Paul lays for us to stand upon that we might be able to live in light of. Now, just take a look at these first few verses, and we're going to go through in terms of these first 14 verses in a summary fashion, because I do want to get to 4, chapter 4. But look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua, Messiah Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Messiah Yeshua, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua The Messiah. Look at that. Messiah is mentioned three times in these two verses. Do you get a sense of what is important and critical to Paul? It's Messiah, it's his life in him. In fact, in verses 1 to 14, 11 times Paul will use that most important little prepositional phrase, in Messiah. We read it often in our Bibles, in Christ, in Messiah. And so that little phrase, which is over and over and over and over in 14 verses, 11 times it is used, is the whole soul of Paul's life and being. And it is to be ours as well. So who is Paul? Well, here's an interesting thing. When you look at these verses, he says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Now, if I was writing that, I would have said something like, If I was an apostle back then in the first century, I do not believe apostles exist today, but let me just give you a sense of what I might say. And I might read, how did he start it? Gary, (laughs) that sounds funny, this, Gary, an apostle and graduate of Northeastern Bible College, Attender tender of Dallas Theological Seminary for two years, graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, student at Harvard Divinity School, and later education at Hebrew College, and all kinds of seminars and conferences that I attended, <laughs> that's what I would have written. Now, either people would have looked at that and said, I am not reading that. That guy is really proud of himself. Or he might have said, you know, that guy's got some credentials. Maybe I should listen to him. Paul had credentials. He could have said, Paul, an apostle, student of the revered Gamaliel, member and friend and associate of the very Sanhedrin gathered in Jerusalem, on hand, consenting to and encouraging the stoning of one of our former enemies of the faith, Stephen. Could have said all of those kinds of things, but he doesn't do that. Why? Why? Because what is preeminent to Paul is Messiah, Yeshua. Is he preeminent in your life? That's the question. Is he central in your life? Now, I'm not going to probe your life. Some might say, I'm not applying this very well, but I'm doing my best. I'm not going to probe your life. You know your life. I do not. Is your life lived in Messiah? Is he central to your life? Have you given your life to him? If you have given your life to him, does it mean anything to you that you did? If it doesn't, you never gave your life to him. Because you cannot give your life to the Messiah of Israel and it be inconsequential for the rest of your life or any moment in your life if he is central to you, if he has saved you and greatly blessed you, well, then our life must be lived for and in him. And therefore, whatever we do, we need to be cautious about what it is we are doing, what it is we are struggling with, because ultimately it is in Messiah that we do so. We sing that song, he gives and takes away, but we don't like the chorus after that, blessed be his name, Because when the Lord takes things away, we say, how do you say, blessed be his name? But that's what the psalmist says. This passage in Psalm 118, I had read it in a devotional, and it really struck me. Because here was one of the preeminent New Testament scholars of our day, D.A. Carson, who's writing this devotional that I receive uh, each day, Monday through Friday at least. And he brought us to Psalm 118. And in that psalm, it says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You can only do that if God is central to your life, if Messiah is central to your life, that he's made the day, and therefore we are to be glorying him, glorifying him in it, and rejoicing and be happy in it. I suppose if I was to survey my life, probably more percentage of it is not glad and happy as I would hope or desire or think. But yet that's what the scripture says. How do you rejoice every day? How do you be glad in the day that we have before us this day? You can only do that if Messiah is central to your life. You can only do that if you trust God. Enough with your life and the circumstances that are impacting on your life. It does come down to this issue of faith and trust. I don't mean believing things that are ridiculous to believe. I'm simply talking about trusting the Lord with our life. Enough to rejoice in the day that we are experiencing at present and that is at hand. D.A. Carson was saying that he remembered growing up when his parents would be bringing him somewhere or the day was going to involve such and such, and he would whine about what was on the agenda. And his father would remind him, this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad at it. And he said it wasn't always easy, but he said, you know, now some 40, 50 years later, I think about those moments because I have plenty of them now that are much more challenging than they were when my father said we're going here and I didn't want to go there. And it reverberates in my mind. It's the day God has given us. We're going to trust him with it. We will find ourselves somehow, some way, by God's grace, rejoicing in it because God is in it in the very least with us. So Paul is writing and is who he is as this unique leader among the believers in the first century, not because of his pedigree and not because of his education, though he had plenty of both, but because of the will of God. Now, you remember how Paul came to faith? Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus. That city is certainly in the news today, isn't it, with all of the challenges going on there and the rebellions and the incursions and the UN uh, peacekeeping forces leaving and the threat to Israel. It's right on our front pages. And Paul was on his way to the capital of Syria, the capital city of Damascus, ancient city, And he was going there with the authorization to persecute, to harm, to murder, to kill all who believed in Yeshua as Messiah. On his way. And he wasn't seeking us at all. He wasn't looking for God. He was looking for God's people to harm. But on his way, by the will of God, God imposed himself on Paul. Where Paul least expected to meet the Messiah of Israel, he meets him. That is oftentimes the case for all of us, isn't it? Where we, When we least expect it, he shows up. And in Paul's case, he showed up big time because he saw him in his resurrected appearance, and all of his brilliance, and in all of his glory. It blinded Paul and Messiah spoke to him, asked them a question, Why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul wasn't persecuting him, but he was persecuting the people that believed in him. But we are the body of Messiah, he is the head. To persecute, to harm the body is to harm, attack, persecute Messiah himself. And so he says to Paul, Why are you doing this? Why are you harming my people? Why are you harming me. And those with him, they didn't see the sight, but they heard some thunderous voice, and it threw them down to the ground. And Paul then is told to go to Damascus. Now, how many of you know this person? His name is Judas. He did not. He was not a disciple of Yeshua. His name is Judas. And he lived in Damascus. We don't know that name very well, or that person, but that's the first person that came alongside Paul to protect him. Because when Paul gets to Damascus, he's taken into the home of an individual by the name of Judas. Judas knew who this man was, and he knew the harm and havoc he was causing to the believers. It was then Ananias to whom God appeared and said, go to the home of Judas and you are to place your hands on Paul so that he will have his sight restored because I have chosen him for me to be a special witness of mine to the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And then Paul spent some three years On his own. It said he did not confer with Peter, James, or John. And God spoke to him and taught him and raised him up as an apostle. So when Paul says by the will of God, he means exactly that. That God is the one who has orchestrated his life, and God is the one who has brought him to this place to be the leader that he was. On the one hand, it means we who know Messiah and honor his word must pay attention to what Paul writes, because this is one that God has set his hand upon in a very unique manner. That's not to say that the other par- parts of God's word are not equally important. I just want to bring home to us how important it is that we do not schluff over what Paul writes in this letter or in any other. Now, this congregation at Ephesus, to whom the letter is addressed, although most manuscripts, most ancient manuscripts do not have the name Ephesus in it. This was really a letter written to churches, congregations in Asia Minor. Paul, during his second outreach journey, that brought him into Macedonia and Greece. On his return from Corinth, he stopped in Ephesus after his second journey. And there he established a congregation of believers, a small body, he didn't stay very long. In fact, he only stayed a few weeks and then handed the work over to those that were entrusted with what he had established. He then leaves and returns back to Antioch in Syria, the home body of believers that sent him out on his journey. On his third journey, he returns to Ephesus. When he gets there, he has learned that Priscilla and Aquila, who had been with him the first time that he went, had continued to work hard in this city, and Apollos had made his way there. Paulus is a learned teacher of God's word. And he spent a number of years in Ephesus teaching the people that were gathered there. He has subsequently left before Paul gets back to Ephesus. Now, Paul arrives, he spends three years in Ephesus. He loved this body of believers. And the work must have impacted some 230 communities that surrounded Ephesus. His work and his word certainly impacted the congregations in the book of Revelation, the seven churches. They must have heard and read Paul's letter. Of course, one of those is the congregation at Ephesus. And so Paul had a very successful ministry here. This was a major city. It impacted millions of people in the ancient world. It housed the Temple of Diana, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. People were coming and going, and Paul taught in a lecture hall every week in that city and in people's homes, and he worked as a tent maker. When he left, and he was on the shores, ready to set sail, he called the elders, and he shared with them his final words you'll see it in acts chapter 20 he knelt down on the beach with them and he prayed and he left them into the hands of his lord he then made his way back to israel and from there was sent to rome because he had made an appeal to caesar while in rome he was imprisoned while in prison He thought about the believers that he had impacted and the congregations he had created. While in prison, he begins to write. And he writes a letter to those congregations in Asia Minor, hubbed around the city of Ephesus, which is the letter we're about to look at. He sent it by the hand of a man, if I'm I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Tychicus, who is a pastor of one of those congregations. Along with him who had the letter, he sends another letter to a man by the name of Philemon who had a slave known as Onesimus, if I'm pronouncing it right. Onesimus ran from his master. He was not a believer. Made his way to Rome. And who does he run into? Paul, though a prisoner. Paul leads him to faith. Now he writes a letter to his good friend Philemon and tells him that your slave Onesimus made his way to Rome was led to me by the grace of God and by God's grace has come to faith and I'm sending him back to you with this letter and I'm sending him back to you not merely as a slave but as a brother and any inconvenience he has caused you put it to my account accept him in love as a fellow brother in our lord that was a second letter he wrote he also wrote a letter to colossae and a letter to the philippians those four letters while he was in prison concerned for those that he had left behind these were people of all walks of life some of them were artisans some of them were merchants some of them were doctors and lawyers Some of them were slaves. They came from all backgrounds, all walks of life. And as Paul writes these words, he has them all in mind. As we read these words, wherever you are in your world, whatever is going on in your life, these words are for you and me as well. Now take a look at this. Paul, this unique individual called of Messiah, by the will of God, And not by any attainments of his own. He writes to the saints in the area surrounding Ephesus. By the way, how many of you are saints? (laughs) There's a little reluctance, you know. (laughs) I never thought of myself as a saint. But the word here simply comes from the word to be holy, it means one set apart. One set apart for the will and glory of God. So how many are set apart here for the will and glory of God? So we have a few more saints here among us than we just had. So we are saints of God. And look what he says. Not only are they saints who are separated, but here's a really good challenging word, the faithful in Messiah. I don't think Paul merely means those who believe in him, those who trust in him, though he certainly must mean that much. But he means those full of faith, ready to trust him with their lives in every facet, at every moment. He says to them, and this is his typical greeting, grace and peace to you. The grace and peace, of course, is the grace of God and the peace of God to you. That's what he confers upon those he's writing to. May God's favor rest upon you. May the goodness of God and all of his gifts be yours in fullness of measure. May you experience that peace that passes all understanding when we go through the valleys of the shadows of death. That peace that unites us with the living Lord of the universe and the King of all kings. May it be yours. May you no longer be enemies of God, but may you be friends of him, children of him, at peace with him and at peace with one another. The only reason we can have peace with one another is if we've experienced peace with God. And thus, Paul says to these believers, grace and peace to you. It comes to us by God, but it must be activated by us. God can give us his grace, but if we don't exercise his grace, you will not experience all the goodness he has for you. God gives us his peace, but if we're not workers of peace, we will not experience the significance and fullness of it. Yeshua says, blessed are not those who have peace, but those who make peace. Those who are the peacemakers, he says. So you see, these words are rather froth and deep with all kinds of neat things. We may step back and simply say grace and peace, but it's much fuller in Paul's mind than we might at first reading imagine. Now look at these verses. I do want to take some time to share these with you because they're so powerful to me and I hope they would be to you. Paul starts this letter with what we would refer to as a bracha, a blessing. He says, praise be to the God and Father. He's blessing God. Now, here's a great lesson for us to learn. If you want your life to be in order, if you want your life to be meaningful and significant, it must start with God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. What happens in our lives is that we evaluate things based on our best intelligence. But what Paul is telling us, we must start with God, not ourselves. And if we start with God, that means his word must be preeminent in our lives. Because God is not speaking to you audibly or personally as such. I do not want to suggest that God doesn't speak to your heart. I understand all that. And I don't want to be forced to dot my I's and cross my T's. But I want to get across the word of God is preeminent. And it must be the arbiter by which we evaluate everything we are thinking about and considering, ultimately. You may feel in prayer a compulsion in your heart. You need to make sure that the word of God sustains what it is you might feel or personally experience. It is God who must come first, and it is word that he has God breathed to all of us. And so when Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, we must start always with him. And thus, whatever we do, it must be because that's what he wants us to do. Whatever we believe, it must be because that's what he would have us believe. And how would we know that? His word. Not what people say to us, his word. Not other important things pieces of literature, and as significant, as insightful as they might be, but his word. And if his word is that critical to us, then we must be in it on a regular, daily basis. Five minutes in the morning is not enough. Five minutes in the evening is not enough. That's not even enough time to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner. In this congregation, that is not enough time to even have a meaningful conversation on the telephone. And if we are devoted to that much time and space to talk to each other, we better be that much devoted to time and space to hear from the Lord whom we need to be in conversation with each and every moment of each and every day. It starts with God. But God will not wrench it out of us. We must submit ourselves to him. We must take up his word and open it, read it, and work so as not to be distracted by the great distractions that are all around us. It gets better the more you put into it. The more you can do, the less the distractions become. At first, the distractions are monumental. But over time, they begin to find their rightful place as we realize the word of God must be the preeminent distraction to all of us. So I'm impressed by these words, as you can see. And I want you to note what Paul is focused on. He's not just focused on the nature of God. He's focused on the work of God. I want you to see what God is up to. Because if this is what God is up to, this is what we must be up to as well as his children and followers. Look what he's up to. He has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. That's what God is up to. God is up to blessing. That's his desire. That has always been his hope for all of us and his work in our world. He made the world and created us in his image and put us in the world he has made so that we would be blessed. He made a world that was not static, but it was active, that we might be blessed. He made a world that was colorful And imaginative so that we might be blessed. Imagine the world that God could have made. Imagine being an amoeba, a two-dimensional being. But God didn't make us like that. He made the amoeba for us to observe. He put us in a world that we might be blessed. That we would be knocked out by its beauty, its wonder, and its splendor. So that we would stand in awe of him so that we could say praise to the living God, look at this and look who I am and look what I am in the midst of. This is too good to be true. So what is God up to? He's not an ogre in the sky with a club ready to pounce on us when we do wrong. That's what we think of him. That's what the evil one would want us to think of him. Because who wants to embrace a God like that? God is after blessing, blessing, blessing. Look what he tells us. Every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. If God had said a hundred spiritual blessings, none of us would complain. If God had said ten spiritual blessings, we'd all be grateful. But he says every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What are some of those blessings? Let me articulate them for you. Take a look at them with me, will you? Look at verse four. First of all, he chose you. He elected you. This is the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's used for Israel being chosen as the people of God. Like Israel, you too. He has set his love upon. He has chosen you. What a great spiritual blessing. Paul tells us, Yeshua himself, we have not chosen him, he has chosen us. And he has made us and is making us into his creation. How could anyone not love and appreciate such a God as that? That he would choose us. And look at this. He did this out of his love in verse 4. He did this to demonstrate his love for us. How is it we cannot trust a God like? We didn't even get through anything, right? We just stopped right here for a moment. He chose you. Do you remember when you were on the ball field? I can remember when I was on the ball field. I was a short little guy. I'm not that way any longer. Somebody had said, somebody had said, somebody had said, said, when they met me, there was a woman who visited from way up north, and she came down because she uses my, uh, our life of Messiah that's on the website to have a Skype Bible study with people all over the country. And so she said, I wanted to come down to see the congregation, to meet you. She said, you know, I thought you were taller. <laughs> <laughs> I said, maybe I should just leave it to the radio, you know. <laughs> Years ago, someone heard me, and they thought I was younger. But what do they know? But here's the thing. In lo- I forget where. What's- oh yes, thank you. thank you. But we all had those moments when we were picking teams and you were chosen maybe last. Anyone have that experience? Oh my goodness. You don't have to admit it. Put your hand up. I don't want to be alone. You know, But many of us have had that. We were not the first guys chosen. But you are now. God has chosen you. And you know that when you finally are making it, there's a great feeling of acceptance and elation. Paul is telling us every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenly realm. The one of which he mentions here is that we are chosen in him. Take a look at this, verse seven. Excuse me, verse five. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. You can see I'm not afraid of that word. Before time began. That's how much God has loved you. I know people look at this and say, well, what about free will? Let's put that on the back burner for a moment. God has loved you so much before you even were thought of by your parents. Before you were ever conceived. Hundreds of years before you were ever imagined. Thousands of years before you were ever thought of. Before the world began. God already knew you. And he already set his love upon you. Whatever you're struggling with. God knows all about it now. But he knew all about it then. And he said, I'm still choosing that one. (laughs) You know, I want that one on my team. And it doesn't matter what cloth or whatever the term is we've been cut out of. God has chosen you. And look what he's chosen you for. He's chosen you to be one of his children. So just being chosen for a team, that's pretty cool. But to be chosen to be in his family. You know what adoption means to to people? To be adopted into a family and a household? Sometimes young people don't realize it yet, but when they get older and they mature and they look back and they realize, I was chosen by this family that I would be raised by them. Do you not think that those children would love a loving home that they know they were not just happen up to appear in, but were deliberately chosen for? There is no greater gift a family can give than to take a child and place it in their home. And nothing on their part has mattered at all. Simply that, I love this child. He or she will now be my son or my daughter. That's what God has done for all of us. He's taken us off the streets and He's put us in His home. He's taken us off the streets and He's given us brothers and sisters. He's taken us off the streets and he's given us aunts and uncles and grandparents. We are the children of God and the brothers and sisters of one another if we know Messiah. We need to live in light of these truths because these are not theological abstractions, they are the reality of our existence. That's why they are the foundation for how we are to behave. If they weren't important, Paul wouldn't even bother with this. He would just tell us, live this way. But all that is, is moralism. But that's not what Paul is after. Paul is after that we would be to the praise of the glory of God. And that takes more than moralism because I can tell you, as you yourself know, there are plenty of people outside these four walls who are nicer than we are to each other inside them. And they're not living to the praise of the glory of God. They're living to the right, to morality and personal acceptance. I take nothing away from them, believe me. But we have a higher calling. And that calling is to be to the praise of the glory of God. We are chosen by him. We are made his children. Check this out. Not only that, in verse 7, all guilt is removed. He says in verse 7, we have redemption through the Messiah's blood, the forgiveness of sins. We can hang there for a long, long time. But the point is, no longer do we stand guilty before God. I've always been upset by the fact that whenever I've been stopped by a police officer, I hate to admit it, whenever I've been stopped by a police officer, I've never, ever been given a warning. (laughs) I don't get it. I can remember when Mary was driving her VW Bug, got stopped and mentioned to her what was wrong, and she said, I'm going to let you go this time. And then I thought, I guess they let you go sometimes. And I'm driving an old 66, rickety uh, station wagon. It was late at night. Our band was rehearsing. I'm coming home. I must have been like 20 years old. I was young. What did I know? And I come up to this traffic light, and on the side are two police officers. They're talking. My brakes were not really well adjusted, and I didn't want to make a lot of noise, you know, because when when I would put the brake on, it would go, you know, it would just be one of these sounds, and it was late at night, and so I sort of slowed down and then... Moved through the intersection. <laughs> and I'm driving, and I went a block, and I went, oh, and then in the rearview mirror, the lights start, and the heart, you know, blah, 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 And I said, officer, it's two in the morning. There's nobody around. I didn't want to make any noise. My brakes, look how old this car is. He said, yeah, I see that. Here's the ticket. You know? I said, no warning. I'll give you another one. No, I got it. You know? But it's wonderful when you are relieved of guilt and you are set free and there is no liability. The greatest liability we all share is a liability before the living God who stands as a judge, as our judge, for we all will sit, stand before the judgment seat of Messiah and He we will give an accounting but no more guilt. It will be a time of recognition for what we have done as unto the Lord. Not just what we have done that we've dedicated to the Lord, but what we have done that the Lord has called us to do. So he tells us we were relieved of guilt. Look at this, verse 9. I'm sorry I'm taking a little long, but I just got to share this. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. I know we don't like to gossip around here, but all of us like to know what's going on. You know, (laughs) it's a tender balance, I understand. But God is telling you what he's up to. The Lord is making known his mystery to us. And the mystery is very simple. He wins. (laughs) That's it. At the end of all time, history, and space, he wins. The Lord will be glorified. He will sit on his throne, and wickedness will be vanquished. So we all ought to know we're on the winning team. And when you're on the winning team... There's a sense of confidence in doing many things, isn't it? When you're on the winning team and you're blowing the other team out, it's like you put in your second, third, fourth stringers, and the coach is really not too nervous. And those on the floor get to do their thing and have some fun and play. Because the game is already stacked. This is the team, like the Bruins. This is the team that's going to win. (laughs) They're down right now, three to two. That's my hope but god is going to win so what does that mean why do we fear <laughs> you know why are we afraid when god is going to win and our life will ultimately be rewarded for our service unto him so god has chosen us god has made us his own children God has removed all of our guilt. God has said, I'm going to let you in on what I'm doing. You'll be a part of it. You'll get to play in the game. And you don't have to worry about missing the foul shot. You won't have to worry if it's an open net and you miss it. Because ultimately, we win. And we will be glorified as the children and people of God. Look at this other thing, if I I can share this with you. Not only... Uh, Are we chosen? And he tells us uh, his will. But he says in verse 11. Let me read this verse. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in accordance and conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were first to hope in Messiah might be for the praise of his glory. So not only has he chosen us, made us his sons, relieved us of all guilt and let us in on what he is doing. He then says, and I'm going to enable you to demonstrate these truths to the world around you. You're going to be to the praise of my glory. You're going to be so energized, so gifted, so enabled that your life is going to be a life of praise to God. Your life will be a life that will honor the Lord. Your life will be a life that will lift up the name of the living God before every knee will bow and for whom everyone confess, will confess that Yeshua is Lord to what? the glory of God the Father. You and I will not have to wait to that moment, although I know all of us are looking forward to it. We can do that right now, not just when we come together to worship, but by our life lived out to him. That is what Paul is saying here. And let me say one last thing. And look at verse 13. And having believed, you were marked In him, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit of God. So if all that wasn't enough, just so that you know, this is so. (laughs) This is not just theoretical. This is not just abstractions. These are not just doctrinal ideas. These are the realities of the essence of life. And these essence of life, these elements that make up the essence of life as Paul sees them, you'll notice, are all invisible. And that's what makes it difficult for us because we are so riveted by the tangible and by what can be seen. But it's the things that cannot be seen that are of an eternal nature and worth. And so Paul speaks of the fact that we have been sealed We've been solidified with regard to these truths by the very presence of the Spirit of God himself. Just like the tomb that Messiah was placed in that was sealed by the Roman seal and therefore could not be tampered with under the pain of death, so the Lord has sealed you by his Spirit that no one and nothing can tamper with it. It signifies your security your assurance. It signifies the very promises of God will be fulfilled in and through you. It signifies that no one and nothing can take them away. And thus, these very first 14 verses, look at the very last line, is meant to draw our attention, phrase, to the praise of his glory. If you thought you were poor, I hope you now realize how rich you are. If you thought you had very little, I hope you now know you have more than you could have ever imagined. And I know that we all struggle with different things in our lives, and that sometimes they're really enormous, and other times they get less so. I hope these truths will help us put those challenges in perspective so we can go through those valleys knowing we never go through them alone. These truths are meant to grip our hearts so that when Paul in chapters 4, 5, and 6 now tells us how we should live, we would say, yes, Lord, because of who I really am and because of what you have fully done. This is much like Moses. He tells us the creation of the world so that we would see all the good that God has given us so that when the commandments are given, we would say, count me in because they must be for my benefit. And so Paul does the same. He tells us of the goodness of God. Look how he has blessed us. And if you look at the very first third verse three times, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And if we have all that, and we do, how could we not be good spouses, husbands to our wives? How could we not be good wives to our husbands? How could we not be good parents to our children and children to our parents? How could we not but love one another? How could we not but work to the unity of the body? How could we not but use our gifts that He's entrusted to us for the benefit of others? If we do those things, then and only then we will, will we be to the praise of His glory. And that's what our goal should always be to the praise of of his glory, because he has glorified us so much with his blessings. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the gift of Paul in this marvelous letter that he has written. We thank you, Father, for Messiah of Israel, by whom all of these riches are possible. And we thank you, Lord, for the body that you are creating in your own image and here at Beth Ariel that you have placed us in. May we pursue it for the glory of God. We pray in Messiah's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers